This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's Speed Round episode, Bill and Phil tackle six topics in an hour, including an installment of Phil's campaign corner, news of a major global climate agreement, the strategy and morality of Israel's campaign in Gaza, a coming Biden impeachment, congressional Republicans losing interest in the Ukraine war, and Jack Smith heading to the Supreme Court in the Trump case. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? Good. That was a heck of an introduction. It Six was. topics is a lot to get through in that intro. Oh, you did you did well. It, it did take me more than one take to do it, <laughs> but I made it. It's a mouthful having. So yeah, our plan for today is we're going to, instead of hitting on three or four big topics, we're going to go through six and spend eight to nine minutes on each of them. So our listeners will get a, a wide variety of, of pressing international and domestic po- politics problems. It feels like a good week for that. You and I were talking last night. It feels like there is both a whole whole bunch going on. There's just a lot happening in the world and, yeah. and yet no story that was sort of dominating uh, the the storyline. So yeah, it gives us a chance to touch on a lot of different stuff. Um, and we were capable of fully explaining complex political phenomena in eight minutes, right? <laughs> Oh, 100%. <laughs> okay, and, and when we go beyond eight minutes, I wonder if our listeners are like, you could have done it in eight. <laughs> how is uh, yeah. how, how's finals week going for you? We uh, the finals launched today. Actually, they launched uh, on Monday. So today is our last day of finals. And so the grading now begins. So the next Mm -hmm. couple days for me are grading. I think uh, you're probably in the same boat, right? It's time to grade. Yeah, we got one more final tomorrow. And then it's yeah. And then it's just a matter of getting the grading done, which is the uh, I was gonna say it's the worst part of the job. It's high up there. There there are many, many wonderful things about our job. But uh, grading is is not I don't think one of them. But (laughs) It is it is it is a grind at the especially at the end when you're yeah. so close. But, you know, it, it uh, and the other thing is some sometimes the students are also exhausted. Right. Yes. So they're kind of like punting and they're like, here's a paper. Do with yeah. it what you like. Yes. <laughs> no, the, fall, so. I, the fall semester is especially that way, I think, because you come back from Thanksgiving yeah. and it's just we've got two more weeks of, of, you know, hardcore material. But nobody everybody nobody's heart is in it at that point. That's absolutely right. So, but but we're we're close to the end, and then we got a nice little break, and then we come back in the spring. So it's good. Um, so let's dive into these topics. But before we do so, do you remind everybody how they can stay connected with us? Yeah. So you can find us at thepoliticslab.com, uh, and as, as usual, all of our old episodes are there for you to listen to. If you want to hear what was happening in the news two and a half years ago in the middle of you know July, you can go <laughs> find that. So uh, that's there. Um, but also, all of our social media information, email information, and all of that. But also every episode has uh, links to relevant articles. So we, uh, the, the six stories we're going through today, we've got, uh, I think, five or six articles up um, that you can go and read a little bit more about the topics. Uh, it probably won't be necessary because we're going to fully explain them in eight <laughs> minutes. But uh, just in case they're, they're there. This is fantastic. All right. So let's let's kick it all off. So time for one of our favorite uh, segments, Phil's Campaign Corner. Uh, We did one last week, but for our new listeners, our very own Phil Barker, he happens to live in New Hampshire. And as a superstar political science professor at Keene State College, he gets to interact with all these presidential candidates when they come to campus for campaign events. This week brought Chris Christie to campus, and we previewed this a little bit last week. So, Phil, tell us about what the uh, the event was like and and, uh, what it kind of teaches us about campaigns and all of that. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a really fascinating event. There's there's kind of a couple of different, uh, I don't know, uh, angles to this. But uh, first of all, just to talk about Chris Christie, um, he was, uh, I, I was impressed. Um, you know, he I was skeptical of him. He was a, you know, a Trump supporter early on and has kind of come around to be a Trump critic. But uh, yeah, I found him uh, in his uh, sort of stump speech mode to be um, uh, pretty compelling. You know, I don't agree with, with all of his policies, but on many of his policies, it was very sort of moderate, if not progressive. You know, he was asked questions, um, by again, he's on a college campus. That was part of his visit. Part of his argument was Republicans need to be speaking to younger people. Um, and so he has been intentional or he made it, he, he was intentional about coming through New Hampshire and he just did stops at college campuses. And, um, you know, as you would expect, he got, there were, the audience was lots of, you know, uh, what you would imagine to be Republicans, but there were a lot of college students who showed up and, and asked, um, good, challenging questions asked about climate change, asked about student debt. And he was, you know, willing to have conversations with, with people talk about how, you know, he believes that, you know, climate change is real and is caused by humans and laid out his sort of pragmatic, um, approach to what we should do about it. And I, I think it was, admir it was admirable to see him come and engage mm -hmm. like that. And, um, you know, it was such an interesting contrast to what we've come to expect from the Republican right. party under Donald Trump, right? It wasn't antagonistic. There were student protesters, which I can talk about here in a minute. Um, and yeah, he yeah. engaged with them. He talked about each of their signs and you know what, this is, I believe, you know, I, I agree with that one. I don't agree with that one. And, <laughs> and it, you know, it was just, it was like a nice reminder of how politics should be. Even when you don't mm -hmm. agree with someone, we are going to have this exchange. He acknowledged, he said there, you won't agree with me on everything, but you'll know where I stand. And, and it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was refreshing to see, um, in the atmosphere that we've, you know, experienced for the last 10 years. Yeah. How so? I'm curious. How central was Donald Trump to his remarks? Because the one thing that has distinguished his candidacy yep. is, unlike literally everybody else on the Republican primary right now, he has been uh, attacking Donald Trump. And so, how how much did that was that involved in his speech? Was it central? I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah, it was very central. So, I mean, once once he got into the question and answer, I mean, his questions they were those tended to be more issue focused, and and he talked about you know, again, student loan forgiveness or, or whatever, um, uh, gun control, uh, you know, par parental rights and education. So he talked about those from a, from an issue oriented, uh, from an, the angle of, of talking about it in terms of issues, but yeah, his, his cell, his cell, his, you know, the point yeah. he was making in his speech was essentially that, you know, Donald Trump, I, I think the, the opening point was that Donald Trump is likely to be a convicted felon. Um, and that, you know, the, the founders did not put an exclusion in the constitution for convicted felons, but that, you know, if they had ever, his argument was if they had even, you know, partially conceived that this might happen. Happen, they certainly would <laughs> yeah. have done that. Like, it's not because they think that convicted felons are a good idea for to be president. It's uh, because they never imagined that the American public would would sort of go down this route or that a party would allow this to happen. So, yeah, I mean, it was very, very, you know, very explicit targeted at Donald Trump, at Donald Trump uh, who, and, and the fact that it is, you know, everything is about 
Donald Trump for Donald Trump that, you know, that, that he's, you know, a, an awful person who um, should not be, you know, given the, the keys of power again. So yeah, it was, a, it was a very direct, um, you know, target uh, uh, on Donald Trump. And I, and I think, you know, I, I think that's fairly effective. Uh, it's a weird situation. We've talked about how, you know, so much of the Republican party has kind of fallen under Trump's, um, uh, I don't know, spell. Um, but there's a big chunk out there that still isn't happy with him. And, and, you know, again, the argument still needs to be made for even people who are kind of following along with Donald Trump that, that this is a bad idea. I, it's hard for me to believe that 80% of the Republican party is hardcore in with Donald Trump, right? That, that there must be yeah. people who are open to other ideas, um, if, if they hear them, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how effective it will be. Um, sure. but, uh, but it's good to hear those arguments made. It has been interesting in the last couple of weeks, the pressure that you're seeing being put on Chris Christie to step down and then endorse Nikki Haley. And it's almost as if there's a group out there saying you two are the only most you're the only reasonable voices in the primary right now. One of you should step away and get behind the other so that, you know, these these uh, the Nikki Haley actually has a chance to win, which I I'm not sure I agree with. um, But but it's interesting to see Chris Christie face all of that pressure that you you mentioned protesters. Why don't you tell yeah. us a little bit about what that scene was like. So the other part that was really different, because every other candidate, uh, that's not, I mean, four years ago, Bill Weld was was running uh, as a, you know, con- like a, a libertarian Republican kind of, but but four years ago, it was, um, you know, Democrats coming through. And so th- we, we haven't had that many Republicans on campus, partly because of what Chris Christie was talking about. Uh, college students <laughs> are not a core demographic of the Republican Party, but partly because of just the nature of the election cycle, I think. But um, yeah, it was, it had a like noticeably different feel from other, uh, the democratic candidates that we've seen on campus in that it just felt confrontational from the get go. So there were student protesters there with signs um, that were standing outside the room at first, but then the, 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 the speech was in this big like glass room, like this room that had windows all around. And once Chris Christie started, the students went outside and were holding their, their signs <laughs> up to the window and were banging on the window and playing loud music and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, so you had on that side, the sort of confrontation, but you also had like, there were people who showed up in Trump gear, right? So you had like this sort of double type of confrontation and it just felt far more intense than any, uh, sort of, you know, democratic, um, exchange, democratic party candidate exchange that I've seen. And I wasn't real sure what to make of that or how to process it. I I found myself feeling uncomfortable, um, in the moment, even though I know that that's very much a part of the, of the political process. But, um, I I guess maybe that says something about kind of where the Republican party is right now to some extent, or maybe it's where we are as a country, right? Because it wasn't just the, there was something kind of a little bit strange about seeing the, the, the student protesters targeting Chris Christie, who is, you know, not he's not in line with their views, but he's, you know, the of, of the one of the Republican candidates that are out there. He seems like the least objectionable. Um, sure. uh, but but we're we're kind of in this, I don't know, this kind of confrontational type moment. And so, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't, I'm still am processing. I still don't know fully what to make of it. Um, you yeah. know, I, I'm, I'm a pragmatist to some extent. We study politics. And so I, I both appreciate the power and importance of protest. But I also think about like, who are you convincing? And so, it, you know, I think about the people in that room who were there to hear Chris Christie, who were being in or who was being interrupted by protesters. And I think, I don't, I don't know that anybody in that room 
was um, convinced uh, by anything the protesters were saying. If anything, it probably confirmed sort of stereotypes of college students. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I I sort of wrestled with that about like, is is the point of protest always to win people over or, you know, how how do I make sense of of that in in this moment? So but it was it was, again, worlds apart, very different from from the the Democratic candidates that, that we've seen on campus. It's, re- it's really interesting, and it sort of uh, slides into these broader conversations about, oh, there we go, uh, about free speech and what that looks like, and, you know, do you have a right to disrupt speech? Yeah. Uh, I'm always on the side of, I, I prefer to allow speech to happen and yep. then allow responses, or I mean, I, I'm, I always err on that side, but maybe that's because I don't like confrontation. Right, I'd right. rather have speech out there and then more speech to counteract that speech, but um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's fascinating. So who's yeah. so who's next up? When's the next visit? I don't know that we because we we go into the 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 winter break and so we don't get yeah. many candidates. So I, I I expect that we will see people on campus in January, um, but I don't know who those are yet. I do know of one that's in the works, but I'm not supposed to say yet who it is. Okay, okay. So, um, we'll, we'll, we'll keep the listeners we'll wondering. <laughs> we'll yes. see um, how that plays out. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's fantastic. All right, let's move on. Topic number two. All right. So um, today in in you know very current news the. UN, at the UN Climate Summit, uh, over 200 countries uh, reached an agreement that explicitly calls for nations to move away from u- the use of fossil fuels. Um, this this agreement isn't legally binding, um, but the widespread acceptance, 200 countries is, is remarkable, um, yeah. this widespread acceptance of a shift towards green energy and a commitment to quit adding carbon to the atmosphere by mid-century um, is a massive milestone. I mean, this is, this is more... Uh, Uh, more of an agreement than we've ever seen. Um, It is of note the first time that an international agreement like this has specifically mentioned fossil fuels. That had been, there'd been lots of pushback from oil producing countries on that. Uh, So, you know, cynics and realists, uh, political science, you know, international relations realists will point to the non-binding nature of the agreement um, as, you know, that this is, you know, how meaningful can it be? But the fact that so many diverse interests, wealthy states, developing states, oil producing nations, island nations, like all, you know, everybody was on board. The fact that they could all agree on this is significant. It even led the European Climate Commissioner to declare that it is, quote, the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. So, uh, Bill, um, you know, in in seven minutes or less, uh, what, what do you make of this agreement? And and ultimately, will it matter? Like how how much power does something like that? Like how how celebratory? should we feel that we've had this kind of international agreement? I think it's grounds for a little bit of celebration, right? You know, and, and tempered a little bit. But to me, it's a big deal because a couple days ago, there wasn't this uh, sense that this could happen, right? And, and you know, John Kerry and others have talking about that. They thought this could never happen, right? The, the idea of, you know, eliminating or moving away from fossil fuels is a huge, huge uh, thing. And, and we should be clear that this is purely at the rhetorical level, right? This is aspirational. Uh, it still has to be implemented. And that's when things get really difficult is when you actually start to try to implement some of these policies. But to your point, the fact that together that 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 all of these states could come together and agree that conceptually it is vital that we move away from fossil fuels and do so 
immediately, right? And that includes, uh, you know, countries that are producing and, you know, getting oil and all of that, everybody that they could, they said the climate change is a, is a big thing and we need to move uh, more rapidly toward addressing that problem. For to me, to me is a, is a big, big deal. Um, and I think, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about norms on this podcast and this becomes the new norm, right? Everybody is accepting that this has to happen. Um, now, it's again, as I mentioned, it is a big transition moving to the implementation phase. You know, there are countries like the United States who advocated for this, but are still, you know, producing more and more fossil fuels, uh, throwing those into the market. So there's there are a lot of challenges ahead. But I think we should sit back today and say this was productive. Enjoy it. And then tomorrow, let's get to work at actually implementing some of these policies. Uh, what's your read on it? No, I think you're right. I mean, my, my first thought was uh, this this sort of shows uh, what we in America have lost, which is that politics is about compromise. Right. So you had yeah. like you were saying, uh, we, w many people didn't think this could happen, partly because OPEC and other countries were explicit about like we will. Yeah. You know, we're not going to support anything that is movement away from fossil fuels. Um, and on the other side, you know, European countries wanted something much sort of more strongly worded than this. And so what we what you had was a group of countries who sort of recognize that they have some shared interest, even if they have different ideas about how to get there or the importance of those things. And they came together and they came up with this compromise, which is, you know, a goal of moving away. It's a little bit further out of a of a of a sort of timeline than some countries wanted there. There's lots of still unhappy parties. Right. I saw lots yeah. of the small island countries um, who were basically saying, like, this is, you know, life and death for us now. We can't be. Um, you know, uh, taking our time about this. But the result was we came up with a solution that could get widespread support and it moves us in the right direction. We've talked about before about the idea of, you know, uh, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Right. And this is what, you know, that if everybody is so dug in that we only my view is, is right, we don't make any progress. And so I, it's encouraging to see the world community sort of recognizing that we're going to, you know, we're going to move in the right direction, even if it's not, you know, perfectly laid out at this point. And so, um, I, that's, that's one thing I think about it. The other, the other part is, which is what you were mentioning. I immediately think of constructivism, which is yes, this, so this does. And, and the idea of norms, like this is not a legally binding, you know, a country's not going to get sort of punished in the way we think of punishment, um, in a legal system if they don't meet their goals. But, when you have two, when you have basically universal support for this idea of we should be moving away from fossil fuels, that creates these expectations. This is, you know, constructivists talk about the logic yeah. of appropriateness, that countries aren't always thinking about, like, how am I going to be punished? They think sort of, you know, what will people think? Like, how, you know, right, it's, right. it's really about sort of, you know, shame and the expectation of behaving in certain ways. And so um, when you create this sort of universal international sentiment, then it becomes... Yes, it doesn't force the United States to do stuff, but it makes it harder and harder for the United States to drag its feet on this when there's international consensus. And so I, I think, um, you know, any sort of movement begins with something like this. And so I think, I, I don't know, maybe it's far too late for this. It would have been great if this were happening 40 years ago, but um, it, it should yeah. be celebrated that it's happening now.
Absolutely. You mentioned the island nations. And then so power still mattered in these conversations because afterwards, the island, number of the island Pacific island nations who are so uh, very, very attentive to all of these issues were excluded from the big boy conversation. Right. So when the big states were having the hammering out the final details, they told the island states to to wait outside and we'll get back to you, which is sort of classic, you know, global politics. But yeah, I, and I think the, the agreement that we saw today is very similar to the Paris Climate Accord, uh, which is we want everybody participating. We want them to move in this right direction. We're not going to mandate things. And I guess that's my one concern. You know, the Paris Climate Accord allows each state to come up with the amount they're going to reduce. And and we know that isn't particularly effective. And we know that even the best estimates of the of the Paris Climate Accord don't get you to where you need to go. Um, so I think there there has to be more serious conversation in this next stage about how you attain these things. Um, so, so there's still a lot of work left to be done, but I think, you know, good start today. Um, I think maybe part of what shifted the conversation was over the last two weeks or so, we've seen a lot of data coming out saying that the world is going to hit the 1.5 degrees Celsius increase maybe next year. Yeah. And they thought that that was a long ways away. So I think the, the reality of this may move more quickly than we think spurred a lot of these states to say, let's, let's at least begin the, the conceptual conversation here and, and then leave the implementation for later. Yeah, it's becoming harder and harder to to pretend that this is not an issue or ignore that. You know, if we yeah. think about I, I talk with my students about the difficulty of of, uh, you know, getting collective action on climate stuff is is the fact that the costs uh, are, you know, born in the short term. Um, you know, we yep. pay now to uh, to upgrade our infrastructure, to shift our economy, um, even though the benefits don't come for for many years. Um, and, and this is an example of where that time horizon is shrinking. Thinking, right, like it, it's it's uh, it flipped around. It is yes, there are costs now, but the looming costs of not doing something are becoming so great that countries, I, I think, don't have much of a choice but to act. The the fascinating part will be what we've talked about before, which is as countries start to act, um, in what ways does that? Um, in what ways does that create new tensions and, and you know, shift the way international relations plays out as, as well, both, you know, economically, but also in terms yeah. of, you know, new technologies and how countries pursue uh, environmental um, policies? I think that's such an important point because the, the concern is no longer with the developed world. Right now, it's it's with those countries that are in the process of yeah. of developing economically who are going to need lots and lots of resources. So it's going to be incumbent upon those who already have developed to provide technology and resources and funds so that these this other the global south can do that in a way that's environmentally sustainable and again that's that's a that's a big challenge but again yeah. every, today we're today we're celebrating that's right so all right let's next topic so uh we're going to take a look at at sort of both the moral and the strategic logic of Israel's military campaign in Gaza and we do so for a couple of reasons uh first yesterday Joe Biden came out and offered a rare criticism of Israel's approach to uh, approach, warning Prime Minister Netanyahu that Israel needed to change its tactics or risk losing global support. Uh, that lack of global support was on full display at the United Nations, where the uh, General Assembly voted overwhelmingly on Tuesday to demand a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The vote was 153 in favor, 10 against, and 23 abstentions, and the United States was one of the 10 against it. Uh, these developments coincide with a fascinating piece in the journal Foreign Affairs uh, by Robert Pape. Robert Pape is a political Pape is a political scientist at the University of Chicago. Uh, Pape narrows in on Israel's uh, effectiveness. I'm sorry, he narrows in on the effectiveness of Israel's tactics in Gaza, and he concludes, "quote 
Even judged purely in strategic terms, Israel's approach is doomed to failure and indeed is already failing. He then goes on to write, quote, Israel is hardly the first country to err by placing excessive faith in the coercive magic of air power. History shows that the large-scale bombing of civilian areas, areas almost never achieves its objectives, unquote. Phil, this strikes me as a really, really important conversation. While Israel has every right to defend itself, it's also important that we assess the moral implications and strategic effectiveness of how they go about that. So, so what are your thoughts about, about all this? Yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, this is really fascinating because I think there there really are. I mean, there's there's many different conversations to be had, but there, there's really a sort of you know you highlight these two different um, uh, approaches to Israel's uh, strategy, and and one is that we've talked about already, which is the uh, the, the moral approach, and I and I feel like. This one's actually pretty clear. I mean, you know, from yeah. even if you look, take it from a, if we, you know, go back into more abstract, broad arguments about what is allowed and not allowed in war and how do we uh, anything that approaches what Israel is doing, which is really indiscriminate um, targeting of, you know, it, it is the idea that like we are going after, you know, the, the target is valid, but the way in which we're doing it is so indiscriminate that, you know, if you're killing thousands of civilians to get to, you know, a couple of, of Hamas uh, uh, people, uh, um, it, you're, it, it's hard to justify that morally. And, and I think, you know, Joe Biden is right, um, but he's also, it feels like about a month late in this to say that yeah. Israel risks losing global support. I feel like Israel has lost global support. They've lost that moral argument yeah. already. They, they had, again, you know, on the on the uh, in the aftermath of the attack on Israel, they had the sort of moral high ground and they have yeah. sort of handed the, all of that away um, in the way that they have responded. Um, and we've talked about there's similarities to that with, you know, September 11th and whatnot, where you this this sort of need for vengeance kind of overwhelms this like righteous anger. You feel so righteous in your anger that you miss kind of the big picture and you become the thing that you are kind of you know, criticizing. Um, and, and so I, I think that is, you know, on one side, pretty clear. The, the strategic one is really fascinating as well. Um, but it, it's a different question, right? Which is like, if, yeah. even if you if you take this from a realist perspective and say, we're not going to worry about the morals, we're just going to talk about whether this is going to work or not. And I think um, Israel's losing that one as well, because again, it is, you know, there's so many elements of this where, uh, particularly in this case, where you're talking about like occupation for an occupation or outside, you know, again, massive bombardment of, of civilian areas um, is just ineffective. It's going to turn people against the the outside force. It's not going to win them over. You can look at this, whether you're talking about Vietnam or talking about, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq, there's like yes. so many World War examples. II. Yeah. World War II, yes, in which this is not, this is not a way to, to actually win the war. So either way, like morally, this is problematic, but also if you're trying to achieve a goal of a safer Israel, this is also not the way forward on that. Right. And so I, I think it's important to sort of make both of those points. And, and I think Israel is, is missing that to some extent. What, what's, what's your take? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you highlighted the important distinction there to say that we can have moral conversations and then we can have strategic ones. And I think why Pape's article is so powerful is that he says, hey, you know, let's set aside the moral stuff. Now, he, he agrees that, uh, you know, that, that Israel is vi- violating the proportionality principle and the distinction principle. But he said, let's set that aside for the moment and think about whether this is good strategy. And he says the answer is clearly no. Right. And he talks about there's been no effort in history where a bombing campaign has caused the people that are being bombed to turn against their government, whether we're talking about, you know, Germany or Great Britain or, like you said, all examples, Vietnam and Korea, elsewhere. You know, bombing has never done that. And that's it's not going to happen here. And so what is good strategy? Well, good strategy would be to draw a distinction and or, or put a wedge, I should say, between Hamas and the Palestinians. And what the bombing campaign is doing is that it's actually increasing support for Hamas among the Palestinians, right? Because they're the ones fighting for you. And so he proposes a couple solutions to think about what would be better strategy to put that wedge and to start peeling away Hamas's support. Um, You know, he talks about a long-term political solution, a two-state solution, you know, more targeted attacks where you're going specifically after Hamas and, and driving down those casualty figures. And it's a really compelling argument to say, this isn't necessarily just about morals, but like it's just bad strategy what you're yeah. doing. And and you should, uh, you know, have a course corrective because it's not going to get you toward your strategic ends. And I think that's a really important conversation. I can't help but think as you as you talk through that, I think about this article that I, I think you gave to me originally about uh, Vietnam and, and yeah. uh, strategies in Vietnam and, and the power of analogies and how the U.S. sort of drew up. But but one of the analogies that came up there was the Malaya, which was a British territory. And yes. and part of you know the, the reason it actually worked there, why they were able to sort of separate the local populations from uh, the, the sort of insurgent terrorist guerrilla fighters was the things you talked about, which is like they promised that when this is over, you know, you'll have your independence, right? There was no, yeah. uh, you know, no sort of indefinite, like, uh, um, occupation to this. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is it is an example of, of where it seems like a... I, I don't know. I, we get so caught up in the, the, the again, the, that sort of righteous indignation aspect, which is, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I think we talked about Kissinger last week and, and the idea of being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes or whatever. And yeah. it really, Israel needs to think about what it, you know, what this is to Palestinians and how do you create, to go back to what we talked about in the previous topic yeah. about compromise, how do you create a solution that is effective for you, but also acceptable to Palestinians? That's how you bring about uh, peace, yeah. not through um, just, you know, absolute overpowering might that that is just not effective. It's it's you're, you're again, like you said, you're you're helping with the recruiting effort for Hamas, not not undermining it. And and that that is the the strategy. There was actually, I think it was another foreign affairs piece, but there's been a bunch written the last week or two about what Hamas is trying to do and their playbook. And their playbook is exactly what's happening. They want Israel to engage in this massive overreaction, to have high casualty numbers because it increases their support. But it also undermines any t- long-term uh, peace settlement in the Middle East. It, it prevents Israel and and Saudi Arabia from having agreements. So is you know Israel is unwittingly or maybe wittingly playing right into what Hamas wants, and that's that's a that's a again it's bad strategy in addition to all of the moral questions that it raises. How much of the, I know we need to move on because the buzzer went yeah. off, but how much of this is goes back to the 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 specific government of Israel? Like this is you know Netanyahu, yeah. and how much of this 
this is sort of a human reaction as, you know, of the Israeli nation. So, I mean, there's, I, I feel like something about it is human, but I can't help but feel like under different leadership, this might be playing out differently. Absolutely. And it could create the conditions for that as well. Right. So because Israel has a, has a hardline far right government right now, which is supportive of this, right, supportive of this sort of uh, just very, very aggressive campaign. And it may lead to a political change where somebody could remove Netanyahu saying like, hey, I can do I can carry out a more target approach to this. I can get our strategic ob- objectives without alienating Israel to the rest of the world. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a really great question. I think I think that we may see that soon. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see. Yeah. All right. Well, since we solved the ethical and strategic dilemmas of <laughs> Israel in eight minutes, we'll we'll move on to American politics, I guess. So, uh, so um, for our next topic, um, Republicans are expected to vote uh, tonight, actually, um, on a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Uh, the inquiry, which is which is not the same as a vote to actually impeach, ha- has been a push of conservative Republicans for a long time, and and Donald Trump in particular has repeatedly called for one or de- demanded one. Um, so such an inquiry is is ostensibly designed to look for corruption in the Biden administration, particularly in relation to his financial dealings with his family and Hunter Biden and all of that, um, which is something that multiple other investigations and years of looking have failed to find um, at this point. So, Bill, this move is certainly a result of the moment we find ourselves in a, a radicalized Republican Party declining approval for Biden amidst the Israeli war, uh, multiple federal indictments for Trump and a looming presidential election. Um, But it it does feel like this inquiry seems to be a political stunt to appease Trump and the base. But I I, I don't know if it's truly a a political stunt or if this is just the mindset of the Republican Party. It's hard, Mm -hmm. again, you know, differentiating between um, what they're doing for show versus what they're doing because they're fully in on this story is is harder and harder to to, uh, uh, differentiate, I think. But I, sh- is this something we should be concerned about? What do you think? Where does this go? Yeah, yeah. Concern. Absolutely. Right. You're, the point you just made is a really interesting one, because Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, uh, gave a press conference the speaker last week where he was talking about that and making the argument that unlike the Trump impeachments, this one is grounded in evidence. And I I found myself listening to that going, Really? Like, because my take on this is when you actually look at evidence that previous impeachments have genuinely been based on something, you know, whether we talk about the two Trump impeachments, it really was about January 6th and, you know, and the previous one about offering a a corrupt deal to Ukraine to investigate a presidential candidate. Like those those are those are real things. We go back to Bill Clinton. That was based on a real thing, like things that happened. Lying under oath Um, is is an issue. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And. And uh, and so this one feels very, very different, right? This still feels like it's at the fishing expedition stage where, you know, I think Republicans are so excited by the flaws and illegal behavior of Hunter Biden that there's just an assumption that there's got to be something going on with Joe Biden. And uh, we have seen no evidence of this. So to me, it feels more maybe it is an authentic political stunt, but it still feels like that. Where they are, they are pursuing something that they think and they hope is there. Um, but there's part of me that thinks this is just being driven by Trump. 
Trump says, hey, I want you to impeach the guy, because if you impeach Joe Biden, what impeachment means is it it drops. Right. It's just it's just a political thing that everybody does. All presidents get impeached. And that's problematic because, you know, you know, Donald Trump was impeached for some pretty egregious things. Um, And then if you start impeaching presidents for much less egregious, non-existent things, I think that that creates a really difficult and troubling norm. So um, I don't know. what, What do you think about all this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's you're you're right. I, I think it's sort of nonsensical in that it, it it was clear. Like we had even talked on here about before Biden ever took office, there was already a push for impeachment inquiries. Um, and, and again, they've been Republicans have had a hard time pointing to exactly why they're impeaching him, which is, again, not how it's supposed to go. There is supposed to be some, like you said, some issue um, yeah. that leads to impeachment, not we don't like this person, we're going to impeach him and then try to find stuff that yes. leads to that impeachment. Um, and so that kind of feels like what what is happening. The other part of it, there's this weird logic to it all, um, which is, you know, one of the things they they claim to be looking at are like, is, is Joe Biden's use of or mis, potential mishandling of top secret documents as vice president, as a senator and all of that. But the, the logic of that is also bizarre, right? Because they are they are claiming on one hand that Donald Trump shouldn't be targeted for these things, while at the same time basically saying, if you're going to target him for them, we're going to do the same thing. And so, right, you know, it, right. it, it doesn't it can't be that it's problematic for Joe Biden to mishandle documents, um, but we're not going to care when Donald Trump did it. it it's again, the, the, the detachment from sort of reality or logic is is uh, is concerning, I think. Uh, the other, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was going to ask you a question, but finish your thought. Then I'll ask a question. Yeah. Um, the other part of this is, is what you're talking. I mean, I think we should be concerned. We should be concerned because, you know, Joe Biden shouldn't be punished for things that he hasn't done or whatever. But I think yeah. we should also be concerned because, like you said, it, it is uh, the more we politicize so much of this stuff, the less it it. it it actually operates the way yes. it is intended to, and it takes the teeth out of it. Um, it. So one of the most important tools in American politics for holding uh, a powerful executive branch accountable um, is is undermined. And I, I, I wrestle with, um, you know, the, what does this go back to? And, and you can look back all the way to the Clinton uh, impeachment, which felt, you know, there was like I, like we talked about, he did lie under oath, but it felt like this. There was a lot of digging to get to that thing. Yeah. Right. Um, and it, they found this one like kind of, you know, needle in a haystack after after digging through a haystack. And so that one felt problematic. But then I, I come back around to the the Dem- there's been this debate with the Democrats um, uh, about whether they were sort of overly aggressive in yeah. their impeachment process and whether that contributed to this. I think about, um, you know, Levitsky and Ziblatt who talk about like restraint as an important part of, you know, when you're in power, you have to part of his mutual toleration. I put up with the other side. But the other one is yeah. when I have power, I'm restrained in it. And I had a conversation with a with a colleague a while back who is very much a Democrat, but but she was arguing that like they lacked restraint, like the Democrats, particularly for the first impeachment, like yeah. rushed no, into it in a way. And so I I I'd, I have a hard time with that because they they're such they're so different. That first impeachment, yeah. I think, was valid. Um, but maybe they did sort of rush through it in a way that was that was problematic. But um, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know how to you know how do you break a cycle of this um, when when only one side wants to take it seriously? Um, it's it's a difficult dilemma to wrestle with. I think. Those, those are great questions, and, and it's really a, a, an important comparison between the first and second Trump impeachments. The second one feels, you know, January 6th feels 
uh, you know, irresponsible if you didn't impeach a president for that conduct. The first one, you know, you that's it's a, it's a, it's probably worth some more conversation about that. My gut tells me yes, uh, and, and we're probably discounting it because there are so many other you know things going on. Then, in the grand scheme of things, you know, reaching out and trying to hold you know a, a foreign leader accountable uh, to go after a U.S. president or former president, or I should say, uh, a candidate is is messy, but maybe in a, in a different way. I was going to ask you. I know we got to wrap up soon, but um, the Clinton uh, the Clinton impeachment hurt the Republicans long term, right? Politically, yeah. it did not help them. Are we at a point where that's relevant anymore? I mean, if if the Republicans pursue what is perceived to be a, a partisan political impeachment, does it have any negative blowback for Republicans at this point? Or is it just where are we beyond any of that now? You know, my first thought was to say we're in such a different place now um, that, you know, we go back to the the 90s and look at the way the way that we were at the sort of the beginning of this kind of culture war, uh, yeah. you know, partisan uh, mindset that, that we live in now. Um, and, and it did it did hurt them because I feel like there were so many Americans who were just concerned with. Governing, right? Like I, I, I want, I want somebody who you know the economy's doing well. They're passing laws. Like this is, I don't, I don't really, I don't care about his private life. Um, uh, and I don't know that we're there. I think I feel like right now yeah. we're so down, so far down this path of partisanship that I don't feel like many Americans are, or I shouldn't say, I, there's a significant chunk of Americans who aren't thinking about good governance or policy. They're thinking about identity. And if it's yeah. about identity, if politics is an identity now, then I think it it, it is, you know, it, it is sort of more effective to, to, to target um, uh, the opponent. And I don't know that there will be as much pushback. But I, I what I come back around to, though, is that I... I'm still not fully convinced. I come back to the idea that, you know, 30% of the country is on board with Trump, but there's a big chunk that's not. And I, I've talked to lots of conservatives who are sort of fed up with the culture war stuff. They don't love what the Democratic Party is doing, but at least the Democratic Party has policies, right? And and so um, it, it's, again, it doesn't have to, it, just like in the 90s, it didn't turn off all Republicans, but if it turns off enough of them or turns off enough of those moderate voters, mm -hmm. it can have an impact. So I, I've kind of talked myself back into it. I think this this could make a difference. Um, I think it depends on how big of a deal it becomes. With, with Clinton, it was a huge deal on the news all yeah. the time, and it feels like the world we live in now. I don't I don't know that this is even sort of you know sparking much. I, I don't know if it comes to the point where they actually impeach him. I think it might be a, a bigger deal. What do you think? Well, I think they've got to have something, right? If, if if they go forward with the case with what they've got now, it's I think there could be some negative pushback or blowback because of it. Um, you know, because so, why Clinton took off is because eventually Monica Lewinsky, the dress, right. all of these things, it made for a good story. Right. There's no story there yet right. other than Hunter is a, you know, a disaster of a of a human being. Right. That's that's not enough to impeach a president. So they've got to find something. Um, that being said, you raise an interesting question. Like, does this, you know, a lot of presidential elections now are about mobilization. And does impeaching Joe Biden mobilize enough of your base, get them to turn out versus those that it's going to turn off? Right. And that's, the, I think, an interesting question for me. Certainly, like, it, you know, there are a lot of people who are going to be really excited about supporting Republican causes if they do that. But to your point, I also think there may be. A segment of the Republican Party that's it's just going to reinforce sort of the clown nature of the yeah. party. So it's it's hard to know. Uh, my, my gut tells me it's a bad idea, but we'll see. It, we'll see. We've we've blown past the the, okay. the air horn didn't <laughs> didn't go off. But yeah, the, the it is. I, I do think it will mobilize or galvanize a lot of Republicans. And I don't know. 
the Democratic Party right now is pretty fractured, right, with with Israel-Palestine yeah. stuff, with economy, all sorts of other things that I don't know that it's going to draw. The, the, my students who are pissed off at Joe Biden because of, you know, Israeli policy or whatever, I don't imagine that they're going to feel empathetic to him because Republicans are impeaching him right, in a way right. that a lot of people felt empathetic to Bill Clinton. And so, I, yeah, it's we'll, we'll see. Interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let's stick with the congressional theme. So now for two years, uh, the Ukrainians have been fighting to repel a Russian invasion. And during that time, the United States and other allies have funded that defense. Yet in a, sign, in a sign of declining support among congressional Republicans, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a trip to Congress yesterday uh, to try to facilitate a breakthrough about President Biden's request for additional U.S. military assistance to Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky's efforts were largely unsuccessful, and Republicans renewed their demand for sweeping changes to U.S. immigration in exchange for any additional funding for Ukraine. I feel it's stunning how quickly Republicans have turned against the war in Ukraine. So what do you make of this development? Well, you know, I've been th- I was thinking about this uh, today before we recorded. And I, and I I mean, I, I think on in a concrete way, it is really fascinating to see how quickly the Republican Party has like turned to this. I, I don't almost again. Even the ones who aren't sort of pro-Putin are like adopting policies that are sort of pro-Putin, which is which is a really bizarre thing. And and so there's there's that weird part of it. But I I also like I found myself thinking about this um, in in a sort of bigger picture abstract kind of way. And that is, um, you know, in in theory, the way a democracy is supposed to work, particularly a two party democracy like ours, is that parties are supposed to adapt to, they compete for voters. And so as public opinion changes on things, parties will sort of change their policies to try to, you know, pick up voters and 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 whatever. Yeah. And so there's something like positive about a party sort of adapting its party line uh, to be more in line with um, public opinion. But um, that's that's the positive way of thinking about this. But the, the downside of the part that I'm troubled by uh, is the extent to which like it, it with the Republican Party in particular. I mean, I, parties do that, but they also help shape public opinion. And, and you yeah. know, part one of the things that the Republican Party is supposed to do is kind of lead its followers in, in you know, explaining to them why it's important to support Ukraine, even when, you know, it's costing tax dollars or, or whatever. And I, and I can't help but feel like this is an example to see a party shift so quickly on something that seems kind of core to its values is sort of a reminder of the extent to which um, our politics has become sort of devoid of actual uh, or or untethered from actual values, right? So I, I feel like yeah. in the past there were these core values of, you know, whatever small government, you know, individual freedoms, that sort of thing, that that tied together Republicans. And um, what has happened is they've become untethered, right? So now it's now whatever Donald Trump says. And so what's happening is the party is like following these sort of weird shifts and veers of the, of its electorate. But those, those that electorates electorate electorate is not being guided by any principle either. And so um, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it, it's weird to see how that happens. It feels like if the Republican base was unified by certain principles, it would be reflected in like, okay, this is, you know, uh, we, 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 
believe in small government, but we also believe in a country's right to defend themselves and, and authoritarianism is bad. And so we're going to support this. And, and again, the only way I can kind of come to understand how quickly this has shifted is that again, Donald Trump says this, it's like this sort of mob mentality and, and that's all there is anymore to, to Republican ideology. I, what, what do you think about, what do you take, what's your take on this? Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting way to think about it, because for so many years, I mean, throughout the Cold War, the Republican w- were, were the party that was hard on Russia, the Soviet Union. Right. I mean, that was central foreign policy was to contain Russia uh, and to see a political party shift so, so dramatically on an issue is curious. Right. And so then you have to ask the question you were kicking around. What's driving this? You know, is it. Is it about money, right? Are Republicans really worried about the money that the United States is spending? Well, I don't think so, because in the grand scheme of things, this is money really, really well spent. You know, the United States doesn't have troops on the ground. And, you know, the amount, I mean, obviously it's billions of dollars, which is a a big amount. But when you look at what you're getting for that, um, I mean, you are devastating the Russian military. I saw a figure that like 87% of the troops that Russia initially went into this war with are now gone, right? I mean, that is, this is so devastating. And the the amount of blood and treasure that Russia is having to spend daily in this meat grinder is 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 dramatically undermining them and their ability to be a, a great power anymore. So this is this is uh, devastating an enemy on the cheap. So it can't just be about money, right? Well, is it about effectiveness? Well, that's an interesting question, right? Because as we talked about last week, it does feel like this is drifting into a stalemate. But what's the alternative? If you pull away and pull out of this, it enables a potential Putin victory. And that's something that 10 years ago, Russia, I'm sorry, uh, you know, Republicans never would have tolerated, right? The idea that you are going to hand Putin a victory in in Ukraine and elsewhere. Like, so I guess I don't understand the argument other than the point you made. This is Donald Trump haphazardly deciding that he likes Russia more and Republicans getting in line and saying the border is as important, if not more important, than Ukraine right now. And it uh, it feels like a party that is lost focus on its priorities and is responding to the whims of uh, a populist demagogue. So, uh, yeah, a bizarre one. Yeah, I mean, there are there are real arguments to be made about why the U.S. shouldn't support Ukraine. I mean, you can and some people make these arguments about, you know, we should be prioritizing people at home who are in need instead of sure. spending this money overseas. But that falls flat on its face for the Republican Party, who immediately turns around and opposes any of those policies to, you know, they're, they're not right. they're not advocating right. for spending more money domestically to help Americans. Right. They're they're advocating yeah. for we shouldn't spend it over there because we need it at home, but also we shouldn't spend it at home either. So, um, so that doesn't, you know, line up, you could argue that this is, you know, damaging American security, um, that, you know, it draws us into a confrontation with Russia, but that's not really what they're arguing either. And so I, I don't, I, it's hard for me to find the sort of consistent, uh, you know, track other than like, I think about like some of it is, I think an anti-democratic party stuff, right? I think there's some sort of knee jerk reaction to if the democratic party supports this, then we're going to oppose it. And, and then I can't help but feel like you're right. It's Donald Trump. But what comes from that is the extent to which Donald Trump has shaped the Republican party along these kind of ethno Christian nationalist kind of, uh, lines. And, and so, you know, there's something that they see admirable about the quote unquote strength of Vladimir Putin or, 
it's it's just bizarre to see that you know kind of playing out the support for the 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 sort of xenophobic the the whether it's you know whether it's Putin or whether we're talking about Hungary or, or you know Viktor Orban or whatever yeah. um, and and that's that's troubling as well and and you can again you can make those arguments we shouldn't be spending money overseas because uh, you know uh, we yeah. don't you know whatever we're from an from a sort of na- pro nationalist kind of standpoint. Um, uh, isolationist standpoint, but that's not really what they're arguing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it feels like, um, it is again, a policy that's driven by kind of values under the surface that aren't being talked about, you know, explicitly. That's right. No, it's, that's really fascinating. And it makes me wonder whether Biden should just take the deal, right? To say, okay, you want me to, you want some, you want border. Uh, we'll talk about that, right? Let's get some legislation on the border. Let's get some legislation for Ukraine. And let's push it through. Uh, and and that would put Republicans in an awkward spot, right? If Biden is collaborating with Republicans on border issues, it takes that political issue away, um, right? And so I don't know if it's as effective in, in the 2024 presidential election. So there's part of me that if I'm a strategist for Biden, let's see what, they, what they're offering on the border. My guess is probably nothing he could accept. But if it was, you know, that's not a bad deal politically. Well, and I suspect that even if he were to say, sure, let's do that. Now you'll support Ukraine. I don't feel like that would happen. Right. right? I don't I don't feel like that's actually I I feel like the border is sort of their excuse for opposing. It's again, there are other reasons underlying it that they're not going to talk about. But yeah, I feel like if if Joe Biden said, let's do it, I think that uh, Republicans would still be hesitant or balking at the idea of, of of supporting Ukraine. Here, and we, I know we need to move on, but I mean, you think about the impact on the the U.S. abroad if the U.S. were to withdraw from Ukraine is dramatic, right? It's it's yeah. basically like Af- Afghanistan again. The world would would see us as unwilling to to meet our obligations. So there's all sorts of international just disasters that develop if this happens. Yep. All right, so let's do uh, one one last topic here while we've got a, a few minutes left. So uh, this week, uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel overseeing several Trump prosecutions, asked the Supreme Court to intervene and rule on Donald Trump's immunity claims um, in, in the January 6th trial. So uh, to a quick summary, Trump has claimed that he cannot be prosecuted for his actions on January 6th because he was acting at the time in an official capacity and it, not as an individual, but as, you know, he's a government actor, and therefore he is immune. Um, almost all legal scholars dismiss this idea. Um, uh, but the issue has to be settled before the substance of the trial can actually move forward. So Smith appealed directly to the Supreme Court in an attempt to speed up this process. So uh, he uh, the the basics of it. So in this in the sort of lead up to this trial uh, around January 6th, Trump claims immunity. The, the judge in that trial dismisses it. Trump appeals um, the 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 uh, the decision, um, and and Jack Smith has now intervened to basically say, let's just take it straight to the Supreme Court. It's going to end up there uh, anyway. Let's let's do this quickly. Um, there is little doubt that Trump wants to drag things out. In fact, he lashed out against this about the Supreme Court taking the case. Um, he wants to drag things out as long as possible so that he can potentially dismiss the charges if he's elected next year. Now, uh, this is fascinating, Bill. I'd be really interested to see how this plays out. It, it is a bit of a 
risky gamble for for Smith. Um, Although Trump's legal claims are dubious, so is the judgment of this iteration of the Supreme Court. So um, is there any way that the court upholds Trump's claim that he is immune for prosecution for all acts while president? It's like hard to wrap your head around the implications of if they rule that way. But but what's, what's your take on this? I would, you know, we're not legal experts, but like you said, we read about this and everybody says like there's no way he wins this case uh, because it would it would basically mean the president is truly above the law, sort of Nixonian. Like if if the president does it, it means it's legal. So my guess is that, you know, Scalia and Thomas vote for not Scalia, uh, Thomas and Alito vote for this, but probably the other seven don't. But I think there are two issues here. One is this question of immunity. But the real issue is what you're hinting at, which is procedure. So Jack Smith is saying we're going to skip some of the process and go straight to the Supreme Court because we know that's where we're going to end up. Um, And so now the court has to grapple with this. Do we take the case? Mm. Do we let them change the procedure, which we should say does happen more frequently now than it used to uh, because of there's a compelling interest in in this being a speedy trial uh, or do we kick it back? Right. So there's you know, so there's the the court could either rule or not rule. I'm sorry, they could either, you know, they could find for him to say that he either does have immunity or he doesn't have immunity. That's one question. But the other question is, do we even hear this now? And if they say, no, we're not going to hear it now and we're going to kick it back to the lower courts, Trump wins in the sense that it is likely going to delay the the case to the point where he it probably either gets close to the election and then he can raise another issue to say, like, this is inappropriate. Um, so there's timing as well as sort of immunity questions. Um, and I don't know. I I would think the court has, even though it is a conservative court, they have consistently ruled against Donald Trump, the individual. Right. So, you know, Trump's conservative causes have won while Trump has lost. So that leads me to think that they may take the case and say, no, dummy, you don't have immunity. Let's move on. Right. So I I think that would be a a useful development. But but who knows? I mean, uh, the court is so political. This whole dynamic is messy. It's hard to know how it's going to play out. I don't know if you're reading the tea leaves. What do you see? Yeah, I mean, I I think um, it it is it is sad that we are at a place in yes. in our like understanding of the court and its um, motives that we're wondering whether or not they will rule if a president is above the law, right? I mean, this should be a slam dunk, obvious nine, nothing decision, right? Of course, you know, the president might have immunity from certain things. That's a legal, that's a legal precedent. Um, But you're not immune from everything just because you're a president. And you're certainly not immune from illegal, from prosecution for illegal acts (laughs) while you're president. And, and to uphold that, to say that you are again, sort of unravels the entire, like the entire, it's, it is the, core of the American democratic model. I mean, that's the whole idea of back to the founders, right? If we want to talk about originalism, it's about like no one's above the law, right? Everyone is, is subject to the law. So it is kind of inconceivable for me to, uh, to the idea that the court might uh, in some way rule for, for Trump. Now, what you point out is oftentimes courts can make a decision that doesn't make the decision, right? And so I I could see that happening. But I also feel like this is a case that the court, like you have to know, you're hearing this case eventually regardless. And so even if you send it back down to a lower court, it's still coming back to you. So so why not, you know, handle it and and deal with it? Even if you're sort of pro-Trump, you would say, well, let's just go ahead and and, and deal this, deal with this. 
I tend to think about, so go back to what we talked about earlier about how it feels like the Republican Party is a party sort of devoid uh, or untethered from values or from, you know, core principles that guide their, their worldview. I don't know that that's the case with mm. the court. I, I feel like yeah. the, the nature of the court, and this is the beauty of like a, you know, a buffered court is that, um, I, you're right. And that the, 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 the most conservative members are going to be sort of pro Trump. And, and there has been for the last 30 years, this argument, well, longer than that, if you go back to Watergate, this argument within Republican circles during the Bush administration, that the president can do basically whatever he wants, right? He is the executive branch. And if he does it, it's legal. So there is a, uh, um, there is that argument out there. And I can totally see, you know, Thomas um, latching onto that. I, I still can't, it's hard for, I, I think of the other sort of conservative justices, and I think they got there not because they followed Donald Trump. They got there because they've gone through this very long process. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the conservative movement has elevated them because they believe they're going to adhere to, uh, you know, anti-abortion politics, small government. And, and I think it's going to be hard for them to turn around and say, yeah, we don't think the government can regulate, um, but, <laughs> right. but the government also can do whatever it wants without any fear of, of, yeah. you know, pr criminal prosecution. So I, I still tell, I, I don't know. I, again, it should be nine, nothing. I will still be anxious to see how this plays out, but it, it does feel like, um, this has to go against Trump, but yes, the question is, does it go quickly? And so the, the case moves forward in March or April, or does this itself get dragged out? Um, um, I, there are indications that the court realizes it, it and wants to move quickly on it as well. So I, I will say well, it, it takes four votes votes to hear it. Right. So you've got to have four votes. And I would think my guess is that the three liberal justices are would vote to take the case. Yeah. And then the question is, OK, among the remaining six conservative justices who might be interested in in upending some procedure to hear the case early. And so then is it a John Roberts? Is it, uh, you know, a Barrett? Is it, uh, you know, you could think about some who might say like, and I, I think maybe to your point, they might just want to get this done with. Um, you know, they say, well, you know, Gorsuch, right? He's wrong. Let's just deal with this. It's coming our way. Um, or do they follow procedure and say, we would like the lower courts to weigh in before we finally weigh in? Because uh, it does make a bit of a mockery of the Supreme Court as well, if this is the longer this plays right. out. So uh, my hope is that they deal with it quickly so that we can get back to having the, the trial play out at a at normal pace and and essentially be done before the, the election really heats up, because if it yeah. doesn't, if there's a delay, it's possible that the trial could be taking place in, you know, late fall, right when the election is at its peak. And that would just be a circus disaster. Well, and if you think about uh, the the uh, if the court, it, I don't know, it feels like there have been times in the past where the court has sort of, uh, I don't know, sidestepped an issue because uh, they're yeah. trying to avoid something controversial. But this is one where if you don't rule now, the potential yeah. controversial decisions that you're going to have to make are going to be That's even greater, point. which is like, yeah. you, if you're not going to rule on this now, the odds that you have a president who is in office, who's trying to pardon himself or trying to yes. oh, uh, you know, undo yeah. acts that you're going to have to deal with that stuff, which is like even, you know, bigger explosive stuff. So that maybe there's an argument for you, you do the hard thing now. 
now. And I don't know. It feels like Roberts is going to be like Roberts feels like a surefire. Like he's of course, the president doesn't have total power. Yeah. And it feels like at least one of those, you know, Kavanaugh or, uh, you know, Gorsuch is going to be also in line with that. I, it's just again, it feels like this is I don't know. I, I'm I'm as I talk, I've made myself cautiously optimistic that the court will rule correctly and quickly. That we got to end at that point because that may be the smartest point you've made all podcast, right? <laughs> that the court may be thinking ahead to yep. not wanting to have to deal with him pardoning himself. So let's make sure this guy has a trial beforehand so we don't have to worry about him getting reelected and then having to rule on whether he can self-pardon, right? That's that's yeah. a, I, I, that's certainly in their, their head. Well, and it seems like, again, you and I are not lawyers, but it seems like the question of absolute immunity yeah. It has clearer legal like guardrail. Like it's easier to make the argument that no, that doesn't apply. Whereas there's like a lot of vagary around the idea of whether you know what are the limits on a yeah. presidential pardon, and we're going to get into the meaning of words and stuff like that. And that yeah, it feels yeah. like let's do the thing that's clearer now, as opposed to having to do the 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 more complicated thing later. Yeah. Let's take the easy question and hope he goes yeah. away. So that's a great place to wrap up. All right, Phil, all the, after speed round today, all of our listeners are going to want to go to the webpage and check out some of these articles. How do they do that? Yeah, as you just go to thepoliticslab.com, um, click on this week's episode. And, and I've got, again, articles on, I think, everything other than Chris Christie. Um, we've got an article up. So um, the, the PAPE article that, that Bill was talking about, um, uh, there's an interesting article um, about uh, Republicans losing interest in, in Ukraine from the Atlantic. Um, so all of that stuff is at thepoliticslab.com. That is fantastic. All right, Phil, I, we may be back next week. We're getting toward the holidays, so we're, our, our schedule may be a little more inconsistent. But but if there's news, you know, the Politics Lab will we'll be, be there. Here. So Absolutely. I'll maybe see you next week, Phil. All right. Good luck grading, Bill. All right. You too. Bye, Phil. Bye. <laughs>